A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. And they came to the place that is called the skull. They crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. The people stood by watching Jesus on the cross. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word of the Lord. As many of you might know, Dr. Longbonds has advised whoever is preaching to begin the sermon before the prayer with something funny, which practically means that every Saturday night after the sermon is finished, I go to my wife and ask, did anything funny happen to us this week? And so uh, this week, uh, it's not my story, but hers, so I will tell it as best as I can. She was in Target, and she was making her way down the chip aisle, and she saw a wise and sage man standing in front of that wall of chips, and he was on his cell phone, and this is what he said. Well, you know, it takes a long time for a horse to decompose. And you got to dig real deep, because otherwise critters get in. That's the best we've got. Here's hoping you never need that advice. Will you join with me in prayer? God, who sees all, who knows all, and who loves us all, in this hour and in these moments, help us to see you, to know you, and to love you more deeply. May these words and the meditations of all of our hearts bring honor and glory to you. It is in Christ that we pray always in thanksgiving. Amen. Where is God when it hurts? Where is God when it hurts so much that you wonder if you'll ever be whole again? Does God care when our hearts are heavy? 
does God see when the world doesn't show a shred of sympathy? Does God hear us when we are helpless? Does God blink when we feel brokenness? Does God even bat an eye when we bleed? Each of these questions is trying to ask the classic question, can God be moved? To overstate the obvious, we ask because human history has long known tragic and, and heart-rending moments, and sometimes we wonder, where is God in all of this? And so the question gets picked up and reshuffled by one historical circumstance or crisis at a time. And sometimes these questions roll around quietly in the back of our thoughts. Sometimes they roll off our tongues, catching ourselves and others by surprise. Sometimes these questions come in prayer, and sometimes they come with exasperation, anger, noise, or with fists raised to the heavens as if our agony could somehow shake the very throne room of God. According to the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, the answer to the question of whether or not divine, the divine responds to the human plight is a straightforward no. Aristotle famously asserted his view of divinity in which God was the unmoved mover. Aristotle's God was not an intervening force. Divinity, whatever that term meant for him, was not motivated to act as a result of human pain and suffering. It didn't matter if the cry of the people was heartfelt or unrelenting. God was unchangeable. God would not flinch. I'm convinced that our text this morning holds the key to the question, where is God in the midst of our pain? But before we get there, let me acknowledge the question you might also be thinking about. Why this text today? I'll remind you that we follow the Revised Common Lectionary at Peachtree. Very practically, this means that you'll end up hearing from different passages throughout the year. We do this in order to diversify our biblical diet and to hear from the entirety of Scripture every few years. This also means in a roundabout way that I didn't select this text for us it was chosen for us, whether we're ready to hear it or not. But why this text today, especially in this season of kingdom tide, when we acknowledge the reign and rule of God, that's been my question throughout this week too. After all, it's, it's nearly Christmas. This is the time of year when we unbox the nativity and the twinkling lights it's the time of year for remembering the, the infant Jesus who cries and coos, and not the Jesus who suffers and writhes with pain. This is a season for gentler and happier tidings. This is time to give thanks for second helpings and leftovers. This is the time to spread cheer and holiday warmth with, with cookies and pumpkin pie and peppermint everything and gingerbread houses dotted with spiced gumdrops along the roof line. 
Basically, this is the time for all things sugar. This text doesn't pair well with our holiday inclinations and sensibilities. Tis the season for the festive Lord wrapped in swaddling clothes. Surely we can postpone the crucifixion until after the tree has come down and has been tucked away in the garage or stowed in the attic until next year. Can we not just wait until the early shadow of Easter to speak of the crucified Nazarene? Can't we just cradle the Christ child and let that be enough for today? But here we are being transported in the lectionary to the end of Luke's gospel. We're called to Golgotha, to a place of pain and punishment. We're bid to sit down and to hear from this uncomfortable, upsetting, and unsettling place. And no sooner do we sit down with this passage than we realize that it's a crowded narrative. Everybody's there. I think that's actually a part of Luke's narrative genius. It's almost a cameo of all the people that Jesus has met along the way. Make no mistake, even though everyone's together, it's not a happy occasion to say the least. You've got the soldiers who represent the plastic arm of the Roman regime. In due time, Rome will fall, but not here, not now, and not today. In this moment of history, Rome was the tyrannical glutton, gorged and, and drunk with its power, prestige, and pretense. But it's not just the Romans who are gathered at the foot of the cross. There are the religious leaders who had colluded with Rome's death-dealing violence. As an aside, we should remember that not all of the Jewish religious leaders were opposed to Jesus, but we often read about those who were. We read also of the crowd. We aren't given information about their loyalty and allegiance. We can't quite count how many are celebrating and how many are sobbing. Perhaps some were just curious. How awful to think that the crucifixion event could have been the most interesting entertainment to take place within walking distance. Earlier, before the start of our passage, we find that there are those present who had been following Jesus. Luke chapter 23 verse 27 reads, a great number of the people followed him and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. What Luke describes these women as doing has a technical term. It's keening. It's the eerie wail that wells up and escapes when your grief has exhausted your vocabulary. Keening is the sound that makes no sense and perfect sense all at the same time. And then we have mention of those two the other criminals who had been sentenced to death for their crimes against the state. We don't know what they were being punished for. We don't know of their trials, if they were fair or if they were fixed. We can't break down their testimonies. What we do know is that those sentenced to death by crucifixion were often enemies of the state. Perhaps these men were picked up on a possession charge possession of a weapon in a city that was allergic to threats of violence against 
Roman rule. Maybe it was something more. Maybe it was something less. We just don't know. What's interesting to me is that for all of our cluelessness about these men, we often imagine them as mangy and deplorable criminals who have the strange role of a lifetime unforgettably appearing alongside Jesus when he breathes his very last breath. Perhaps you've heard the line, well, he was someone's son. It's a way of saying surely someone was grieving for them too, but we can only imagine who that might be. Regardless, Luke gives us a full cast of characters. Later in the chapter, he even reports about those who are watching at a distance My hunch is that this might be Luke's subtle narrative nod to all of us, as if to say, even though you weren't there, you're catching a glimpse of what the crowd saw just by reading or hearing this account. Suffice to say, even the white space on the page around this text feels overcrowded. Everybody who's anybody is there, men and women, Followers and friends, villains and villagers, sympathizers and soldiers, criminals and, of course, the Christ. And what does Jesus say to those gathered around this gruesome spectacle? Verse 34 in our text records Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. We find in this simple prayer something that sums up so much of the ministry of Jesus. God entered into the human scrum to herald a more loving and forgiving way in spite of the people's maligned knowing and distorted doing. Jesus' prayer, that is to say, the heartfelt prayer of God, is ultimately one of relentless compassion. Even wrongful accusations and a violent death will not deter his love for both those who called him friend and foe. Jesus literally prays this prayer from an elevated vantage point. Suspended in the air with agony coursing through his veins, Jesus thinks not of himself, but of others. I find this compassion to be even more visible in the words he utters to the criminals who are also enduring their own punishing and excruciating death sentence. Both of the men beg Jesus to do something. One of the men is terse and the other is reverent. The first man pushed. Can't you get us down from this if you're who the sign says that you are? If you're really the king of the Jews... Can't you do something about this? And and if not for us, then at least save yourself. He's saying what we've already heard in Luke's gospel. If you're God, surely you can call down an angelic army and be delivered from this fateful existence. There's a resonance with the temptation of Christ from Luke chapter 4. But in that wilderness temptation and in this rugged place, were reminded that this was never about Jesus escaping the pain. That's not the kind of king that he is. Quite the opposite. All along, 
It was about Jesus stepping into the world with both feet to feel the pain, to know the human condition, to walk it out until the very end. Jesus didn't come to escape human frailty, but instead to be present with it. God came near to be with and among rather than to be distant and removed. And here, I think, is the key to the whole thing. The fact that Jesus died and suffered alongside these men tells us something about where God is in the face of suffering. Throughout this week, I've gone back again and again to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote these lines shortly before his death in a Nazi prison. Quote, God lets himself be pushed out of the world on to the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. Only the suffering God can help. That is a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. Man is then summoned to share in God's sufferings, end quote. What Bonhoeffer describes is a God who can do nothing less than respond in love and in solidarity. You might know that Bonhoeffer, one of the great theological minds of the 20th century, escaped Germany as an outspoken critic of the Nazi regime. However, he would later leave his cushy post at Union Seminary in New York, convinced that if he was not with other Christians during their suffering, then he wouldn't rightly have a voice with his people at the war's end. I find his biography so compelling because I think he understood deeply that Jesus not only lowered himself to be with humanity, but also that Jesus suffers with humanity alongside us, alongside you. The cross teaches us that God always sees and feels the pains, the wounds, and the tragedy. Throughout the Gospels, we are taught that Jesus' suffering with humanity is actually the most human thing of all. Jesus' life extols what it means to be truly human, the life of Christ is what can then be followed and imitated both then and now. And what we find in all of this is that suffering is in Jesus' very being because he is love personified. To put it another way, Jesus comes to know authentic pain because his love is authentically real. On the cross, Jesus extends a loving gaze to the crowd and the criminal alike. In the truest sense of all, God is there with them all. God sees their pain. God is moved to speak, to utter, and to pronounce a good word into a world that can be chaotic and cruel. Jesus speaks into a world that knows pains too deep for words. In his last moments, Jesus looks at the criminals and gives them a word of divine hope. Before his death, 
Jesus' last words to another human being in this gospel are spoken to a criminal. Truly, Jesus said, I tell you today that you will be with me in paradise. Now, admittedly, many have read a lot into this line. It's sometimes been used to prompt deathbed blessings, confessions, and conversions. Other New Testament scholars have looked at these words to discuss the timing and conditions of paradise in the New Testament understanding. It's all interesting, but I think it misses the point. At least for me, this time around, what I find in Jesus' words is principally a word of hope in the midst of suffering. Jesus' suffering presence is made known powerfully and vividly. And in this, too, Jesus speaks of hope and promise in what, by every appearance, is the place designed to defeat all hope and promise. Here, even before the resurrection, hope is undying. It cannot and will not be defeated, not even by death. And the words of theologian Jürgen Moltmann, quote, Anyone who cries out to God in suffering echoes the death cry of the dying Christ, the Son of God. In that case, God is not just a hidden someone set over against him to whom he cries, but in a profound sense is the human God who cries with him and intercedes for him, end quote. What Moltmann is getting at is that it is precisely in the outstretched God that we find this simple truth. God suffers in the passion of his people. In the late Elie Wiesel's remarkable and tragic book, Night, he recounts the story of how the SS hanged two Jewish men and a boy in front of the entire camp. The men died quickly but the death throes of the boy lasted for half an hour. Wiesel writes, Where is God? Where is he? Someone asked behind me. As the youth still hung in torment in the noose, after a long time, I heard the man call again, Where is God now? And I heard a voice in myself answer, Where is he? He is there. He is hanging there on the gallows. This story has been etched in my theological memory since the very first moment I read it so many years ago, precisely because it's how we see Jesus on that terrible cross. Wiesel's account reminds us that every instance of human suffering is also a place of divine suffering. This is one of the many lessons to take note of in the cross. And answering the question, why this text today, I think we should be reminded of a fuller understanding of Christmas that comes in knowing that God not only comes near us in Jesus, but also that God suffers with us in Jesus. God feels and hurts alongside us. This is the unabridged definition of Emmanuel. I'd like to think that the song lyric is true. God's heart breaks when our hearts break. And so, on a day like this one, 
What should we possibly do with all of this in our own time and place? I want to leave you with two parting ideas, and I also encourage you to think of your own. First, if you're someone who isn't hurting right now, may you remember that a part of following Jesus in your everyday actions means seeing others in their suffering and then walking with them. With the holidays just around the corner, I hope you'll be on the lookout for those who are struggling to know a word of hope and joy. May you seek to bring goodness into the world around you, not in a trite way, not forcing a smile when it hurts, but in a way that nonetheless holds out shalom and wholeness and healing. There are no doubt people in this room, in your workplace, or in your neighborhood who will be facing the holidays alone for the very first time this year. My encouragement is simple but important. Look and care for others. Learn how to walk weary roads by just being present, by showing up, by taking a walk, or in sharing a meal together. I was reminded this week of the beauty of the term companion, this word literally means and then has come to mean someone you break bread with and then someone that you travel with. We all need companions to eat with and to walk with. Perhaps getting to this place will mean thinking of a time when someone you loved wasn't at the Thanksgiving or Christmas table. Maybe you know what it's like to face unemployment, surgery, recovery, an ongoing illness, loneliness, disappointment, or some other hardship that you just didn't see coming. Listen both to yourself and to those who are worthy of love, which is everyone. And when it feels right, think about how you can speak into the silence or into the noise. In short, follow the way of Jesus in lowering yourself for the sake of others. Second, if this sermon has been hard for you, if you're going through something right now, if you're hurting today, I hope with all that is in me that you'll leave this place knowing that the God of the universe who came near so many years ago is the same God of love that still feels and hurts when you hurt. Sometimes the pain remains let us not forget that Jesus did not escape the cross, but instead died on it. But it was his precisely his presence in the midst of it all that reminds us that we are not alone and that we are not without faith, hope, and love. And this is to say nothing of the resurrection hope that still awaits us in Luke's retelling of the gospel. I began this morning with Questions such as, where is God when it hurts? And does God care when our hearts are heavy or pierced with sorrow? My friends, may you hear this undying truth whenever those questions begin to swell. God is there in the middle of it all. On this day, no matter what you're going through, Know this to be divinely true. You are seen. You are known. 
and you are love. Amen.